Welcome to Last Ones at the Bar, your one-stop shop for all your boxing needs. We're here to talk about all of the important affairs in the sport of boxing. My name is William Henry, and I'm accompanied by Lavelle Jackson and Daniel Lee. And we know in the Drop Science podcast is ringing bells like a household appliance. Um, got a lot of topics to discuss this week, folks. Um, but we're going to start off by discussing what we have coming up the next few weeks as far as the verses. So our opening question this week is, what do you guys think about the new verses that they have with Bone Thugs and Hermie uh, versus 3-6 Mafia? And then you also have Shaka Khan versus Stephanie Mills. Uh, what do you guys think about that? So the Shaka Khan one is a little bit before my time. I might catch that one with a glass of ripple, you know what I mean? But <laughs> no, but uh, that Bone Thugs and Harmony in 3-6, like, I think it's going to be good, but in terms of catalog, I can't see a scenario where 3-6 don't wash them if they play it right, to be honest with you, because they just done so much over a, such a long span of time. Like, Juicy J is still producing hits today. And, like, granted, it would be, like, how would you pair – what Juicy J is doing now with what Bone Thugs did, but the fact that he has produced so many things and has those type of type of credits just makes him more of a versatile threat. Yeah, on the Bone versus Three Six Mafia versus I, I kind of agree with you, Daniel. Uh, I think Three Six have uh, way too many songs because their career is kind of in twos. Where in, in 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 relation to how they match up with Bone, Bone is a it ha, is the bigger group and they have the bigger hits, no doubt. And I was a bigger Bone fan, but when you look at them matched up, I think Three Six Mafia kind of started off kind of like Bone, uh, you know, sounding similar to Bone, and then they went more into a crunk style. So it's basically like they 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 transitioned into a whole nother style, which Bone really was, you know, they they own their own style. So. When I look at the songs matched up, I think Three Six Mafia does have an advantage, and I'm pretty sure Bone's gonna get more pop with songs like Crossroads. Now, the way when I look at Shaka Khan versus Stephanie Mills, I mean it depends on who you like more because a lot of people may say that Stephanie Mills don't have a chance, but Stephanie Mills is really for those those hardcore R&B heads. I mean Stephanie Mills. Uh, I mean, she's no joke. And, and then you have to ask, are they are they singing this live? And, and a lot of things might come into play. But you, you never know what Stephanie Mills might have up her sleeve. She, she might have a, some duet with Michael Jackson that's unreleased that she might have up her, you know. She did used to date him. <laughs> yeah, yeah they'll, they'll be interesting verses, though. Yeah, I, I like both of them. And you guys actually told me about this prior to us going on air. And I like them. I like both. Um, I like both of these matchups. I think Bone is actually going to do a lot better um, because, but what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to pull from some of the songs that they had where artists like the Biggie, like the Tupac, like the Master P. Like if they add those times when they collaborated with other artists then I think you're going to have a really nice uh, matchup there. And I think they, they definitely will do that. Um, but in a, if it's just 20 songs, I think that they can, they can compete. It's going to be a couple of times it's going to get a little scary for them because of the fact that they don't have a catalog as 3-6. But I think it's going to be a, a really good versus. I'm glad to see that. And I'm also glad to see a, a versus that they're having that's outside of the, 
New York region, you know what I mean? Because they've been taking uh, up a lot of the attention as of late, but they sh I'm glad that they had their run, but I, I wanna see some other regions uh, participate in that. Now, as far as the Shaka Khan and Stephanie Mills, that could go either way, but I will lean towards Stephanie Mills and here's why. She's more consistent. And I think that artists like Stephanie Mills, like they might be still recording like in Las Vegas, like they got their little set that they do out there. So she's gonna be well, well fine soon. Where Sasaka Khan sometimes, when you see her, she can be kind of all over the place. And I don't wanna say what it is that, you know, I don't wanna disrespect Shaka Khan, but sometimes she's not as um, coherent and sometimes she's not as on point. And so for a 20 song set or session, I can see it kind of being all over the place with her at certain moments where Stephanie Mills is gonna be real consistent her voice is still on point, and so I will lean towards her. But either way, you know what I mean? This is going to be really, really uh, fun to watch. Now, getting off into what we're here coming here for today, as we're talking about these boxing matches that have taken place um, this past weekend, where you had two cards, or really three. The zone had two, and then you had the Showtime card. Um, so I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and start out in Phoenix, Arizona, where we had um, the David Benavidez versus Kyron Davis fight. Uh, what do you guys think about that? So David Benavidez versus Kyron Davis. I call this the, the audition for Canelo. Um, so David Benavidez, he's coming to his fight uh, 24 and, and 0 with 21 knockouts. A six foot one was a 74 inch uh, wingspan with reach. Uh, he has wins over Anthony Durrell, which was a good win. He has a, uh, also a knockout victory over uh, J. Leon Love. Kyron Davis, 16-2-1 uh, with six knockouts. He's 5'10", has a 73-inch uh, reach. Uh, he has a draw with uh, Anthony Durrell. So their common opponent was Anthony Durrell and uh, how we tried to predict this fight. So the way this fight went, Benavidez pretty much did what he always does. He, he pressured uh, Davis, uh, he tried to back him into the corner and, and, and uses his size and reach. Uh, he, he uses jab a lot. Uh, one thing that, that he does do that, that I think could work against him in the future is that he, he tends to square up a lot. And, and for a guy who, uh, as tall as Benavidez is at super middleweight, that what that does is take away some of his, his reach. Uh, so, uh, he doesn't necessarily use the full, advantage of his reach because he's so squared up sometimes um he, he fights with a high guard and sometimes that body is there to be hit which we did talk about a few weeks ago uh but against uh davis he was able to do that he could do whatever he wanted to do because he can you know he was he's he's, he's physically bigger than, than davis and a lot stronger and and shout out to, to Kyron davis if you're not a fan before this fight uh, you should be a fan after, and and for someone who, who lost a fight like that, it, it's incredible that he can pr he probably have, have gained a lot more fans. I mean, the guy he stood in there. Uh, whenever he you thought he was going to get stopped, he would he would throw punches back and, and really put his stand out there. He takes punches very very well, and and I, I remember saying to myself that, that, that he's not going down. It, they're going to have to, the ref is going to stop this or his corner is going to eventually stop this because he's not going down. He's not, he's determined not to go down. And even when he's hurt, he tends to fight back. So there's no way that, that this fight wasn't going to get stopped and him not 
and, and not being happy with it. You know, he was always going to have an issue with it because, you know, who he is. So props to Kyron Davis. But it was interesting when he came out, when uh, Davis was, was moving around, circling Benavidez so much that he was kind of making me dizzy <laughs> myself. But then I think the second and third rounds, so he just started to sit in there and fight uh, Benavidez. And I thought that that, even though that, that, that was a more exciting fight, uh, and he probably had to do that to get Benavidez respect, I think it would have been better for him to, you know, box him more. Um, he did have some beautiful counters against Benavidez, but also I think one of the, the, the biggest things I saw that he didn't do was clinch. And had he been, you know, clinching and tying Benavidez up, even though Benavidez is, 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 is strong, it's funny because I think Kyron Davis was, uh, his strength is underrated because when, when he was able to push Benavidez back, you know, he pushed him back like, like when Canelo pushed uh, Caleb Plant back. So he, he's, I think he was physically strong enough to tie up Benavidez if he tried and, and, and he probably would have survived a little longer and probably would have got the decision. But shout out to Kyron Davis and shout out to David Benavidez on a very action-packed fight. I lost a dollar on his bet, uh, you know, because because he didn't make it to the Kyron Davis didn't make it to the final bell. But I was happy to lose that dollar because Davis, he, he proved enough for me. Yes, sir. You know, they're very accurate on these predictions the last maybe what, six months, you know, more so since probably like September, August. I think the only person that, that got me right now is uh, Robert Garcia. But anyway, enough enough of me, you know. Now, as far as the fight is concerned, um, I thought it was a good win for David Benavidez. He battered Davis, you know, round after round. Kyron was tough, but he was overmatched. And I thought his game plan just wasn't the smartest. Now, maybe it could have been just the fact that it was a two-week um, you know, time frame from the get prepared for Benavides. But a lot of times when he, you know, was showing that heart, which he has a lot of, man, I got you have to commend him for that. I think he would have been better suited to, you know, attempt to box a little bit more because you don't want to just, you know, try to outgun, you know, somebody who has like a double barrel, you know, or two double barrel shotguns. Now, um, but I, what I saw throughout the fight was that Benavides was walking Davis down. Um, and David, he was showing good hand speed, combination punching, uppercuts, you know, body work, solid jabs, just a variety of punches. And, you know, like I said, Davis often tried to exchange and fight fire with fire. And he had some success, you know, with that strategy a few times. But again, I just don't think that that was a good strategy to have against David Benavidez because he just doesn't have the power to, you know, keep up with him and have that fire fight you know, with Benavides, but I saw some things in there that enough other fighters may be able to take advantage of against Benavides in the future. And also Davis was experiencing most of his trouble when he just like languished on the ropes. When the fight was fought in the center of the ring, he had more success and he just, it just wasn't as much of an onslaught when he was like in the middle of the ring. But once he got on those ropes, you know, Benavides just can do that all day. Like, just throw those straight punches and hard punches. He's going to keep coming. He's not going to get tired of doing that. Like, you got to make him do something else. But just as far as just throwing punches, he can do that 12 rounds, 15 rounds. And he can do it while he's tired because that's just something that he's naturally good at. And he, you know, constantly works on that thing. If you look at him 
and some of the footage that they have of him just training, he's always in there, boom, 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 boom. You know, he can throw those punches, like I say, upstairs, downstairs. He just has the total package when it comes to that. Now, after the fourth round, it was just all Benavides. He was just uh, unloading violent combination after violent combination until Breadman, um, which is Davis's corner man, threw in a tie with about 48 seconds left, you know, or into the seventh round. And so um, it was a couple other things that I just want to mention. You know, I don't want to be long-winded. But after the fourth round, Breadman is, is a very sharp, you know, he knows everything about the sport of boxing. So I'm not trying to, like, anyway evaluate his performance. But I just thought it was a couple of times where he said a few things in the corner that was kind of confusing. You know, like, for instance, after the fourth round, like I said, once the onslaught started in the fourth round, he was telling Davis that, Benavidez had shot his shot and shot his low. And then, like, not too long after, they said, you know, he kind of shot his low. Now, those are two different things. I know when I shoot my low, I'm done. But if I kind of shoot my low, I might have a lot, you know, a lot left. So, you know, I thought that was a little bit confusing. And then also, he told him after the fifth round, he said that he's going to stop it if he doesn't show him more. Show him more what? Because after the sixth round, the sixth round was worse than the fifth. And then he allowed the fight to go on a little bit further. I just thought he needed to be a little bit more clear with what it is that he was saying. Um, but maybe Davis, you know, they have that connection he knew. But all in all, I thought it was a good win for David. But I felt like this was should have been, instead of Benavidez versus Davis, I thought it should have been more like Davis versus Goliath. But that's my take. Yeah, Davis versus Goliath, I'm all right. I do want to give Davis his respect for taking a fight on two weeks notice and just being as game as he was. Uh, you know, there was moments where Benavidez had him against the ropes and probably would have got a lot of people out of there in those moments, but he stood in there and fought back for as long as he could. And it's a guy who started his career at 154, you know, so came into this year, fought Anthony Durrell to a draw, beat Martez McGregor by unanimous decision. And then he put on the show against Benavidez. So for where he started this year, I would say his stock definitely went up overall to your point, Ville. I do agree with what you said, Will, about his coach, although I will give him props for just knowing when enough was enough and saving his fighter for when it was time. Maybe after that fifth round, he was trying to instill some urgency in him uh, without any real intention of stopping it so soon. And then in the seventh round, he just said enough was enough. I don't know, but um, props to that corner in general and just, you know, Davis for being game. Now, the CompuBox numbers had it. Benavidez landed 181 punches out of 382 thrown, or 47%. And Davis landed 54 out of 233, or 23%. Now, Benavidez landed 45 power punches to the body. If you're fighting an elite fighter with the power of Benavidez, it's going to be hard to win, let alone make it to the end of that fight when they're landing you know, 137 out of 268 or 51% of their power punches. So props to Benavidez for, you know, going in there and doing what he said he was going to do. Did you have anything else on the fight itself? Yes, sir. I was just going to say, I, I want to make sure that I give props to Davis for the heart and determination that he showed throughout the fight. By no means do I want to, you know, not acknowledge that. Um, I just think that Davis is in a situation where they aren't, you know, 
protecting him from himself because Davis is really a pretty good fighter, you know, and, and look at it from this perspective in terms of what I'm saying. Like, that was an opportunity for him against Benavides, but I think somebody should have been like, you know what, let's go ahead and do what we need to do to get you where you, so you can maximize your potential as opposed to putting him in there with a monster like Benavides yesterday. You know, I can't see, he's, he's like I say, he's very talented. And with guys like that, he's still relatively young. So you don't want to put him in a situation where you kind of derailing his career. Now, he may come out of there and not have any ill effects from the Benavidez fight, but he may very well have some lingering effects from that because he took some horrific shots. And I don't care how much heart that you have, it's only so much that the human body can take, you know, and after a while, you can have like the most vicious dog on earth. If you have that dog and he's getting... You have him fight. I'm not saying that you should have dog fight, dogs fight. So don't miss me with that nonsense. Don't put anything in the comments saying that he's promoting dog fight and all that type of stuff. Not. Nah, I'm just saying that if you did have a dog, a pit bull or whatever, the best one that you can have, eventually, if they get in, in, in too many fights where they're getting bit, that fight and, and, and that they have in them, it's going to come out of them. It's just human nature. You know what I mean? That you just can't, your body's just going to give out. And so, and that's psychologically the damage that you take sometimes. So I don't think that they should have put him in that situation. He's too talented of a fighter for you to risk what he possibly could have risked yesterday in terms of what he left in the ring. It may have not had any lingering effects. I just wouldn't have put him in that situation. And so the example that I'm giving, for instance, we're going to talk about Jaime Mangia. And so I, I can't see like his handlers putting him in a situation that's not going to allow him to blossom into the best fighter he possibly can be and just say, you know what? Oh, okay. Triple G is wants to fight when Triple G was at the height of his career. And you say, well, we'll, we'll go for that after two weeks notice. No, you don't do that. Like I said, he's skilled enough where he can be a champion. He can be real competitive, especially like at 160. Um, but I don't think they did him any favors yesterday by putting him in there last minute against a monster like David Benavides. Yeah. It's like on one hand, his stock, did go up, you know, he made for a good fight. But on the other hand, it's like, it's a slippery slope because it's like, well, what if he becomes one of those kind of gatekeeper kind of people when he could have been better than that? You know what I mean? So, and he has 16 wins and, you know, you don't want him to be there like, yeah, he fought out of top competition, but now he's 16 and 10 and kind of damaged goods. Yeah, so instead of like Jaime McGee, he gave Rosado, you know what I'm saying? Right, but right, exactly. Yeah, 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 I agree with you guys' points. Uh, yeah, he, I, 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 even in the beginning, I thought taking a, a fight like that off, uh, like maybe two weeks' notice or three weeks' notice, was a mistake in, in and of itself. But you know, he believed he could do it, and even so, even though it's a moot point right now, I'm, I'm still curious on, on how that fight would have played out if he would have had a full, you know, two month training camp, you know, preparing for just David Benavidez. You know, but as y'all said, he he's definitely more suited to fight at 160. And he probably, if he tried, he probably could make 154 again. Being that he he, you know, he walks around with about one uh 185 or a little bit under. I mean, it's 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 junior middleweights that's probably you know heavier than that that's walking around right now. So uh I think he should go back to 160 and, and campaign there. I, I think he'll make 
you know, make some progress there. He probably could, you know, you never know. He might, he might be a future fight with him and Jaime Magia. That that could be something, you know, we never, cause he is like, I think Benavidez is a, is a, uh, his physicality for 168 is too much for a guy that's the size of, of a Kyron Davis. Mm-hmm. So in that post-fight presser, Benavidez said that there's nobody else for Canelo to fight, and he was going to continue to chop down whoever they threw at him until he gets that fight, which leads us to our next topic. If the people get what they want, can Benavidez beat Canelo? To borrow a, a catchphrase from Young Jeezy, can he beat him? Yeah. Will he beat him? I'm not so sure. I, I, I think I have it more so like a 65-35 in favor of Canelo. And I'll, I'll tell you why. And it's, it's several reasons why I just can't pick David over Canelo at this point. One is Benavidez, he's, he's had success, you know, when guys are right there in front of him. And most of the guys he's faced so far, I haven't seen them with the pop in their punches to be able to keep up with them and be able to fight fire with fire. And Benavides is just not going to just be sitting there teeing off on Canelo without receiving some repercussions from that. Another reason why I favor Canelo is that Benavides sometimes is off balance and he falls over um, and he reaches a lot too. And I don't see him doing that against Canelo for 12 rounds without Canelo making him pay. These other guys, they have punches that like just whistle right past his, his face or they might connect a little bit here and there, but you're not going to take that from the cinema, man. And then also, David hasn't fought the best competition to prepare him for Canelo. And, you know, the moment that when he fights Canelo, is he going to be able to handle that moment? You know what I mean? Because Canelo is a different animal. That's going to be like the largest stage you possibly can be on. And then you fighting the best opponent that you've ever faced. So I don't know how he's going to be able to hold up under those circumstances. You know, I like the kid. I think that he has like everything that you want in a fighter. He's to me, he's similar to uh, Karan Davis, like not in terms of I haven't seen him take punishment like that, but just that inner fight that he has that that, you know, sort of je ne sais quoi when it comes to a boxer. You know what I mean? Certain fighters just have it. And he has that, you know, has that thing that you root for in a fighter. Um, the other thing is, and we mention this quite often, is that he just doesn't move his head enough or his body, you know, and he's the physique, you know what I mean? It's people get to go into that body, you know what I mean? Somebody as powerful as Canelo, he drills those shots to the body. I don't know how David would be able to respond to that against a sharpshooter like Canelo. You know, Canelo can hit you on the shoulders and hit you on the elbows and, you know, you feel everything that he throws. And if you're not moving around, and you just bracing yourself or you're not even bracing yourself for that, that onslaught of punches, then that's not going to bowl well to uh, for you against the number one pound for pound fighter in the world. Another thing is I think that Benavidez, again, I like him. I like his family. I like his father, you know, training him. But I think that he needs another set of eyes on him as well to push him to a, you know, even a higher level. And, you know, if he has somebody in his corner, like a Nacho Bernstein, a Eddie Reynosa, Robert Garcia, Freddie Roach, you know, you know, I know that Mayweather called him Freddie the joke coach Roach, but I think that he's a good trainer. And I think that if he has somebody like that with that type of experience, then I think that that would decrease the odds a little bit for me, you know, in my eyes. 
And, you know, lastly, he's going to be getting tagged by Canelo. You know what I mean? And how will he be able to handle that? You know, some of these guys, like I said, they land a few shots on them, but they're not really the biggest punchers in the world. And, you know, he's just too much for them offensively. And I just can't, like I said, I can't see Canelo just letting him get off like that without putting something back on him. And I don't think that the high output that he puts out against other fighters, I think Canelo will be able to mitigate that. Now, for Canelo on the other end, you know, it's not going to come without risk. Now, he's going to have to deal with that pressure and power of Benavidez. But I think um, he's faced fighters that are more similar to David Benavidez than what David Benavidez has faced that will prepare him for Canelo. So my prediction, like I said, 65, 45, or 65, 35, the math was off enough. I said 65, 45, but 65, 35 in favor of Canelo, you know, in honor of the great Rakim. I think that in that fight, Canelo will target them handles and then light him up and blow him out like capitals. So that's my prediction. Yeah, I agree that he can beat Canelo, but will he is another story. Um, he does have that four-inch height and reach advantage that he could use. Um, another thing I like about him is he throws those punches in bunches and he has a variety of them that he can throw at range. I felt like, for example, in that plant fight, when plant was throwing the flurries that he threw he didn't vary a lot of those punches so a lot of them didn't get through and that's something that Benavidez would do better he can also stand behind that longer jab I will say that I do believe in that fight if and when it happens Canelo kind of has this game plan that he's been using where he kind of just walks his opponents down and he continues to land until they break down. You know, like he doesn't necessarily rush through the game plan. He doesn't get a lot of, he doesn't seem to have a sense of urgency once he gets a gauge for your power and your style. And depending on the judges, it can cost some rounds, but it's a lot more effective when he doesn't respect their punching power. Thing is, even though Benavidez has his flaws, Canelo is going to respect his punching power. And I also think that part of the reason that Canelo kind of does that game plan is because he knows the judges are going to favor him in those close rounds and, you know, to manage his stamina because, you know, earlier in his career, a few years ago, he did have those stamina issues. But another thing Benavidez does well is he has that high work rate and he can beat Canelo or at least hurt him. But Canelo's been there in there with a lot of fighters, a lot of fighters his size at this point, And Canelo does the things well that could beat Benavidez. You know, Benavidez could probably and probably would be better suited at 175 in his, at this point in his career, I believe. He can just continue to make 168, so he does it. But um, I do think it's going to cost him because Canelo is going to go to that body for sure. Canelo has the ability to use his head to get in there. Uh, Benavidez is going to fight at range, but Canelo is going to continue to seek to go in there. And yeah, I just have to, because of where Canelo is as a fighter right now, and because of his experience, and he just kind of seen it all at this point, I, I'm still going to give Canelo a, a majority of a chance to to win. I, I'm not going to put a percentage on it, because similar to Benavidez making 169, because he didn't have to be 168, I don't have to put a percentage on it yet, so I'm not, but I do think Canelo would win that fight. Yeah, can Benavidez beat Canelo? Yeah, I believe he can, but just like you guys, Willie, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so, based off a, a, a style, because 
you know, Benavidez, he fights with a high guard. He is the only thing that's going to really, really help him um, is, is, is his work rate pretty much. It won't be his punching power because Canelo has seen punching, you know, guys who punch hard. He's even seen, you know, volume punchers. But I think that has a more, uh, for, for Benavidez, I think that's his best chance of uh, beating Canelo is by outworking him. And even then, it, that's going to be risky because, you know, Canelo, even though he's a smaller fighter, he's he's more defensively responsible than Benavidez. And plus, the reason why he can walk down bigger guys is because they have a hard time hitting him, you know, while he's coming forward. You know, um, and the, the 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 only punches that, that you can possibly be successful with him against is really a long jab. And even then, he can counter that jab, you know, and being a Vitas, he does have a, a pretty decent jab, but at the same time, he squares up so much that he gives up some of his length. Like we saw what, you know, when Triple G was successful with the jab against Canelo, but Canelo was still able to counter him over the top. Now, Triple G has, you know, he has a, a over, above average chin. We don't know if Benavidez has that type of chin yet, even though he's been in there with guys like Darrell. Uh, we don't know how he's going to take those accurate shots from Canelo because not only the power is that Canelo tagging with shots that he you probably won't see coming. So it'll be interesting to see what will happen once they're they're both in the ring. Um, and and also you know Benavidez doesn't really protect his body well, and you know it's not like he has a, a ten pack. So Canelo is going to. I think the the first half of this fight will be. I think Benavidez would, would do very very good. It'll be kind of like. I would say uh, uh, like how Triple G and Canelo, the first fight went. But then again, once Canelo keeps tagging that body, I can't see how Benavidez's work rate won't drop. And then by the time that starts dropping, and you know Canelo is so much of a professional, once that rate starts dropping, this fight will will look similar to, I say, uh, Pacquiao Margarito, where Canelo is just going to, but, but at a, a lower work rate, where I, I believe that Canelo is just going to, be throwing these hard, snappy shots at Benavidez, and Benavidez won't be able to do anything but hold a high guard because he's not going to move his head and he's not going to, you know, dance around or, or try to move away from uh, Canelo. And I and I and I've never seen. I'm not sure how Benavidez can fight going backwards. I've only seen him come forward. And against Canelo, I mean, Canelo can can counter come going backwards. We've seen that even against Triple G. Uh, so uh, I, I think it is a, a maybe a, a 65. 35 fight or even a 70-30. I think if Benavidez would have gained more experience and, and learned more how to, you know, move in box and stick and move, if he has that wrinkle to his game, I think that would help him. But based off what I've seen, I think he's just a movement. He's just a target for Canelo um, and his only chance to work rate and his power. Anything else you guys need to share? Yep. That's good. I think Benavidez is just Benavidez. You know, I think he's maximizing the attributes that he has. You know what I mean? He, he's, he's just good at what Benavidez does. Just based on his, his like, physique and physical attributes, I couldn't see him, like, really doing much more. Now, what he could work on, and that's why I was saying that it would be good for him to have another set of eyes inside of his corner, you know, to work on some of those things that he can, you know, get a little bit better at, at least, you know, as far as the head movement and as far as being able to um, – you know, like protect his, his midsection a little bit, especially with the handles that he has, you know. So, but all in all, I think that based on his physical attributes, 
he's really maximized a lot of his talent, especially at an early age. I think that when you mix what he does and the overall package of what Canelo brings to the table, then I think that you will have to favor Canelo in that scenario, you know? All right. We, we, we mentioned this guy before, but there was another fight at middleweight that took place uh, yesterday. I'm talking about Jaime Mugia versus uh, Gabriel Rosado. Did you guys check out that fight? What were your thoughts on it? Yes, sir. So Mugia is now 38-0 with 30 knockouts. Gabriel Rosado is now 26-14-1 with 15 knockouts. And I just want to start out by saying much respect to both fighters. This was an action-packed fight from beginning to end. You know what I mean? Mugia stood in there against a seasoned veteran who's campaigned at 168 for his past two fights. And he proved to have a chin and to be able to survive those deep waters, you know. So um, that said, I personally scored it 118-110. I gave Rosado one of those middle rounds. I don't remember which one, but one of those later rounds also. For the most part, it went about how I thought it would go with Magia winning an action-packed but decisive fight. Compu box numbers, Magia landed 328 out of 821, 258 power shots, and Rosado landed 154 out of 551 with 123 power shots. Now, 821 punches is a high output for a middleweight, and that alone can win Magia some matches against, you know, high-tier competition that could otherwise go either way. Now, props to Rosado. He came in there and fought his fight. He tried to bully him in some spots, but Magia was able to still stand in there. I thought Magia moved a little bit better defensively in his fight as well. And when he didn't, he did a good job of making his offense his defense. Um, I think that's all I got, though. But it was, a, it was a good, exciting fight. And I wasn't mad at that card overall. Yeah, I was impressed with uh, Jaime Magia. Um, I actually predicted that Rosado would, would, uh, would upset him. And even then, he did give Magia a little bit of trouble at, in spots. But I think... Magia was definitely, uh, he, he boxed pretty well. I mean, I like that he was, you know, uses, using a one-two. He had a, a two-fisted attack, and he was bringing it to Rosado and wouldn't let, wouldn't let Rosado get too comfortable. But, but props to Rosado. I, I, it was some times in that fight where he was taking some shots, but I was like, man. But it's, because of Rosado, you like, yeah, that's what he does. But if it was anyone else, I would be more concerned. But at the end of the day, it's like, what does what he has to prove? And he has to be getting up there in age. I, I've seen him in plenty of these types of fights, even more brutal than this, uh, even when, when you consider the, the, you know, a triple G fight, uh, which was years ago. He just, he's just a tough guy. But at the same time, I think I think Mugia, uh, it's interesting because I always used to look at Mugia as some, some type of guy who used to drain down to 154 so he can have an advantage because he was so much bigger than him. But even at 160, I, when I looked at them in the ring, they looked about the same size, or McGill was a little bigger still than uh, Rosado, who was fought at 168. But even then, uh, McGill, he didn't really use his, his size as much a, a, as I thought he would have. He, you know, he did box well and kept his distance. And even when he got, you know, when it, when it got in range, uh, they mixed it up well. And I, I just always look at McGill as kind of being like the, uh, the Jared Hurd's little brother. But I think he does box better when he tries than Jared Hurd. But, you know, it was it was a good fight. Um, I, I'm not sure what happened at the end of round nine where I think 
Rosado was a uh, he 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 had again a corner and he was hitting with some shots and, and putting up a good run. And I know that it was maybe a shot or two to hit the, the back of the head and it was one on a hip. But I, I I thought the way the ref handled it was kind of a little too uh, a stern for Rosado being this, this was a rough and tough fight for both guys and they, and they both were doing you know throwing to the hip throwing to the you know around the head so uh, that was interesting but props to McGee we, we, we'll see what he uh, does going forward. Yeah, shout out to me for this one also. Remember, fellas, I text you. I said that McGee will win, not easy but easier than I expected. So when, when, when I sent that message out, it was basically because I was thinking that Gabe Rosado, he's fought his last few fights at 168, and he seemed to me to fight better at 168 because of the pace of the fights kind of is a little bit slower as you go up in weight. And then also he's able to, his speed, like he's, he's, more quicker against the heavier guys and you know he's one of those guys that likes to time you and, and and things like that and so he can offset those bigger fighters and he's been looking much better at 168 so i figured that by the time he drops back down to 160 and you look at his resume at 160 it's not nearly as good even though he's competitive it's not as, he doesn't look as powerful as he does at 168 but he definitely doesn't um, have the same amount of energy that he does at 168. So I was thinking about those things, and I thought that the younger man would take advantage of that. And, you know, obviously that's what happened. But going into the fight also, I figured that it was going to be McGee's output versus Gabe's power. Um, he was going to have McGee's activity versus and fast-paced starts versus Gabe's resiliency. So I figured that McGee would have more rounds and, you know, things of that nature. But at the same time, Rosado was always trying to set you up. And it was one time in the third round when he set him up perfectly, but he just missed the shot. It was the same shot that he knocked out Vectormir with. And he was catching Munguia coming in, leaning forward, and he was going to run right into that shot. Kind of a la um, Manny Pacquiao versus Juan Manuel Marquez. And you saw the look on his face like, dang, I missed it. You know, and he, I guess, guess he was hoping he would have that opportunity again. But those opportunities come like once a fight and he, he just so happened to miss it um yesterday but i also had it on um, the first three rounds i thought that that was all mcgee the young man started off fast and Vail, he's not to me he's not um her like he has more talent than her i believe you know and then also i think that he i think he's more he's closer to how canelo would drain people or he would have the physical advantages over guys at like 154, but not as technically good as Canelo. But I think he's closer to that than Jared Hurd. I just don't think Jared Hurd. Um, well, I don't want to talk bad about the, 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 the fellow. Now, um, round four, to me, round four was like, could have been round of the year. I gave it to McGee, although Gabe had some good moments. But I also thought in round four, that's when McGee, not McGee, I thought that that's when Gabe Rosado kind of switched the momentum. He changed the momentum of the fight. And then rounds five and six was even to me because McGee was landing by far the more punches, but Gabe was landing some hard single shots, you know? And it's like, who would you prefer to be? The guy that's landing like the huge shots or somebody who's just rat-a-tat-tatting the dude pretty much the whole round. 
Round seven was all Magia. Um, round eight, that's when Rosado hurt Magia towards the end of the round. Um, but by that time, Magia was just racking up so many, so many um, points. And then round nine, like these were some really tough rounds. It's just to me, Magia already had such a head start that it really didn't, you know, matter because McGill would be winning like most of the round and then Gabe would land like some chopping right hands that kind of had looked like McGill was like in trouble or something like that. So again, it's like, who do you give those rounds to? But it wasn't enough of those rounds where I could have said that Gabe won the, won the fight. And then round 10 was another round of the year type of round. I thought that Rosado was having success. Um, not Rosado, but McGill was having success early, but then Gabe rocked him. And like you said, Vail, the referee, I don't know what he was on at that particular moment because he stopped the guys when Rosado was putting some serious damage on McGee and looked like he could have dropped him or something like that. But he, like, captain saved him, you know, jumped in and was, like, kind of admonishing Rosado, and the round wasn't even over. Was, he was acting as if he was hitting him after the bell. I, I didn't understand what that was all about. I just It looked like he was just trying to save McGee from any, you know, trouble that, that he possibly could have been in and, you know, ensuring that he wasn't going to get stopped in that, at that particular moment. But then round seven, I mean, around 11 and round 12, that was all McGee, you know. So, like I say, all in all, I think the young man is, like right now, he, he he's solid, man. And I don't really necessarily, before the fight started, I was saying that he might want to pump his brakes before he fought somebody like Gabe Rosado. But like I said, after I factored in that the fight was at 160, and how Rosado fared in his other fights at 160. I thought it was a pretty safe fight, but it was also a fight where he could, you know, learn a lot from the seasoned veteran, and which he did, and he passed with flying colors. So I really don't necessarily need to see Magia against any other contenders, you know? And so, but I'll leave it at that because we're going to talk about where he goes from here. All right, with that being said, so where do you think the young man goes from here? Uh, I think... His next fight, whoever he chooses, that's this is going to determine like pretty much his agenda and, and, and how much faith he has in himself and how much his faith his team has in him. Because when you look at all the champions, you have, uh, of course, you have our Jamal Charlo, then you have Demetrius Andrade, then you have uh, Triple G, and each of these guys are guys who these are, these are each of the guys who McGee ha ha has had history with as far as. Uh, there's been talks about he should fight this guy or that guy, and there's been matchups and, and things of that nature and things being discussed, but never uh, solidified. Um, actually, I wouldn't mind seeing him versus uh, Demetrius. I think that's a fight that, you know, you have these two guys who who, who need they, they need a named opponent that, that, that can show that, look, I, we belong on the, top, on the top level. But then there's, of course, there's Charlo. And then I, I've even heard people trying to put Munguia saying that him and Canelo will make a good fight. I'm not sure if I would like that fight for Munguia. I think he just moved up to 160. He should just stay there for now uh, and see what he does. But I think they're, what they're probably going to do is after uh, it, the winner of Triple G's next fight, I think they're going to try to match uh, Munguia up with uh, him. Uh, I'm not sure if I see them putting Munguia in there with uh, Andrade, Andrade. And I know, I'm not sure if they want, if, I see them because of promotional issues that I see them putting him in there with Jamal Charlo, which is sad because these are all excellent fights. You have 
these mini. It's funny how you have each guy with a middleweight strap, and then you have just eight pounds north of that. You have an undisputed champion that's just sitting right there. So, you know, we'll we'll see what happens next. Yeah, I think it's time for the young man. Um, you know, where does he go? Man, any of those guys. I had a situation. I remember a few years ago. It was this uh, kid who was in at this particular school, they had two different types of courses, different types of classes, right? So you had the honors and then you had the general education. I don't know if that's something that's common, you know, throughout the United States or in any country, whoever may be listening to this podcast, but at this particular school, in this particular um, district, they had honors gen ed, and they had this one kid who was in a gen ed class, but they were talented, they were labeled talented and gifted based on the assessments that you take in order to determine whether you are a tag talented and gifted student. So the student met the requirement. It was a social studies class. And so, but the teacher didn't know whether or not to push the kid to, because you can be talented and gifted and still get honors curriculum, but you just in class with general education students. And so the teacher wanted to push the kid to the honors courses because it's a more accelerated program. And but they were kind of nervous on asking a kid and they were asking us, how do, should we, how should I push this to the kid? And so, and all of these scenarios were coming up. Now, um, one thing that was mentioned was that the kid mentioned before that they just wanted to have a class that was not honors because they had maybe another class that was honors or two, and they didn't want to get overwhelmed. But like when you look at them being labeled tag, their reading levels, their Lexile scores and all of these type of things, where we just said, just tell the kid, come on now. Like this is this time. It's time for you to go ahead and go and move to the honors classes and be amongst those students that those caliber students that you should be around. I think that Mugia is in that same situation. Come on, Jaime. You know what I mean? Like, um, I know that this is one of the first, like, really stern tests that he's taken, but that's a solid victory right there. And I think that with his attributes that he has, he has an a engine, man. Like, he can, that, he, he can go and, and, and go and go. He, he can fight when he's hurt. He can fight. He just has a, a, a nice revved up engine inside him. So that's one thing. Then he also just has offense galore, like those punches. Anybody else that he was fighting yesterday would have been dropped, possibly knocked out. But Gabe Rosado has a tremendous chin. You know, even Triple G wasn't just putting him, you know, hurting him when he was landing some of those bombs that he was landing. So if he's landing any of that type of thing on other opponents, then he's going to do away with those guys. He's going to punish those guys. They're not going to take it as well as Gabe Rosado did yesterday. And then also now he has Eric Morales in his corner. So he's getting, he's looking better each and every time that I see him. And it seems like Eric Morales, El Terrible is putting a little bit of seasoning on, you know? And so I, I look at it like this. Now, for me, if I was him, I would just wait for this Triple G fight to take place. And that's where I would go. Because I think at his age, with the offensive repertoire that he has, Triple G being older, this is a perfect opportunity for him to do away with Triple G. Or my next fighter that I would take would be Charlo. I think that that's 50-50 right there. 
Because again, that offensive repertoire and the fact that he's going to keep coming, keep coming. And Charlo often has laws in his fight where fighters can take advantage of him and his physical size. And all of those things will give Charlo trouble. The only guy that I think may not be as, um, I would say, he would be most the, the, the most troubling of the three would be Andra. And that's just because he hasn't faced somebody as slippery as Andra. But everything else, he could easily convince, uh, conceivably outwork Charlo. I'm not sure. But that's the order that I would take. But th that's who I would go for next. I would try to get Triple G in the ring. But Triple G nowadays is fighting once every two years. So I don't know if he would even be into, in consideration um, just based on that. But that's my take. Yeah, you guys pretty much said it. I'm probably going to say the same thing in a different way. But after the fight, McGee made it clear in so many words that his preference is Triple G or a title shot or at least a title eliminator. That's what he wants next. So, you know, just to run down the list again, he's currently the number one contender for Andre's WBO strap. But, you know, to you guys' point, I would avoid him the most, honestly, because on one hand, you know, McGee's work rate might bother him. But on the other hand, I think Andre is too slick for him, and there's not a high payoff. There's probably the least amount of payoff fighting him than any of the other guys. He's also the number one contender for Charlo's belt. but And I think this would – I do agree that this would be like a good 50-50 fight, but then after the way Charlo looked against Montiel and the fact that Charlo's PBC, I would say that Charlo's camp is probably not looking his way unless WBC makes it mandatory somehow. Now, Murata has a WBA strap. And he and Triple G are going to unify that in the IBF. McGee is not highly ranked in either of those, but Triple G is on his own. And I would personally like to see this happen. I think it would be a good fight at their stages of their, their careers. Um, but, of course, it highly depends on if Triple G actually wins that match. But I do think that would probably be the one that I would personally want to see the most. So, fellas, earlier on the zone, there was a card out in the UK featuring Kid Galahad against Kiko Martinez. Well, you saw that one? Yeah, I checked it out. Um, it was the second time I had a chance to see Kid Galahad fight. I think the other time I saw him fight against Warrington, uh, it was a close fight that they ended up giving to Warrington. So in this match, he was going against Kiko Martinez, the old Wiley veteran, you know, 35 years of age, where Galahad is 31. And Immediately when the fight started, I was like, man, Galahad, you know, he kind of looks like a combination of Amir Khan and Kell Brook, except he doesn't, he's not as dynamic as either guy. You know, he doesn't have like the blazing speed of Amir Khan and he doesn't have the pop in his punches as a um, Kell Brook, you know, in his prime. And then Martinez, he just looked like a little old dude in the ring. You know, he looked like a combination of Morgan Freeman and, um, George Burns minus the cigar, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, one thing that doesn't leave is that power in your punches. Now, as far as like when a fight started, well, even before I get to that, when the fight started, they made the point that Kid Galahad, that was his uh, return back to Sheffield. He was making his first defense of his IBF uh, featherweight title. And when the fight started in round one, you know, he came out and really doing a number on Kiko Martinez by establishing a jab early. And then he even hurt Martinez uh, from the left-hand stance with a left uppercut. And he really didn't like go in, you know, for the kill or anything like that. 
it looked like just based on the first few rounds that it was just really going to be a systematic like breakdown and beat down um, of Martinez. And, you know, uh, Geller had round two, same thing, you know, switching up from southpaw stands, right-hand stands, landing plenty of clean punches on Martinez. And then round three, it was more the same. You know, he was just landing a variation of punches um, and his skills on full display in those first few rounds. And even the fourth, you know, he started to look, um, Martinez started to look a little bit jaded, a little bit tired, you know, so I was wondering how long he was going to be able to, you know, last, you know, taking not necessarily like a lot of punishment, but like when he was getting hit, his feet and legs just seemed like they were unsteady a little bit too. And it was taking him a while to get into the fight. But by the time he was getting into the fight, he started to look a little bit jaded, started to look a little bit tired. But what I did notice is that some of the times that Martinez was throwing some of those wide winging punches that he was just missing Galahad. And I was in my mind, I'm thinking, I said, well, if he lands one of those, I wonder how he's going to be able to hold up. But I really didn't think it all the way through because he was really doing a number on Martinez and it was just like, you know, easy pickings. But also, you know, in retrospect, thinking about it, like when you look at Kiko, not Kiko, but uh, Kiko Galahad's resume, he's really never faced a power puncher. So how would you know how he's going to respond once he does get hit? You know, the way he was working Martinez, he could have got a little bit bored too, you know, but Round five comes around, Galahad doing the same thing. <laughs> you know, he's just doing his old one-two, switching from different um, stances. But then at the end of the round, he gets clipped with a huge right hand, puts him right on the seat of his pants. Luckily for him, it was like at the end of the round where Martinez didn't even have an opportunity to come and try to end the night, you know, in that moment because the bell rang. Right. So you would think that he had enough time to recuperate. But the Wiley veteran round six, I'm talking about the first thing Martinez did was check that chin. He went over with another right hand, the same punch. He just threw it. Boom. That was the end of the fight. All she wrote. My main man, Kid Galahad, was uh, knocked out, knocked out cold. And, you know, the good thing for Martinez is that, you know, he gets an opportunity to get his title back um, or a title back in the featherweight division, but also this is going to guarantee him, you know, a nice few more nice paydays as well. And also for Kiko Martinez, I also want to point out that he's up there as far as like one of the best fighters from Spain all time, you know, so you will have like my main man, Sergio Martinez, and then more, more recently, who's not up there in terms of his career as far as being an all-time great from Spain, but you just had also the guy that just beat Mikey Garcia, you know, so, you know, shout out to Spain, you know, they doing a number in, in, in the world of boxing, but it was a, a really impressive victory from Kiko Martinez. You guys have anything on that fight? Uh, yeah, that was just, uh, you know. I, I checked out the, some of the highlights and, and yeah, that knockout was kind of, it's funny <laughs> when you hit him at the end of the round and he, he dropped him, dropped him on his pants, as you said. And then as soon as the next round opened, it was like, pow, that was it. I was like, wait a minute, five seconds didn't even pass. It was like literally like two seconds into the round, but it was, it, it was, it was exciting uh, to see. All right. And then also yesterday, Bill, you want to touch on 
David Benavidez's older brother, Jose Benavidez, he was in action for the first time since his loss to Terrence Crawford, I want to say about three years ago, against Francisco Torres. Uh, what did you think about Jose's performance yesterday? Uh, Jose's, you, you could tell he was dealing with some ring rust. I mean, some severe ring rust, but it's to be expected because it was three it was three definitely three years so he, he came in 27 and one and 18 knockouts uh of course that losses to uh bud crawford which is yeah about three years ago where he was stopped in the 12th round but still showed some a little bit of toughness in that fight uh and francisco emmanuel torres is 17 and three uh with five knockouts uh now, now for the interesting thing about benavidez is of course he's he's fighting at 160 uh at, at middleweight pretty much he weighed in around uh, 159 um and he's a six foot he's, he's uh, listed at six feet with a 71 inch reach so it's interesting that he was you know he fought at he was squeezing all the way down to welterweight uh even in even uh, francisco emmanuel torres was you know a six foot 74 inch reach and his look uh, he kind of, he kind of was reminded me of uh, Diego Corrales for a second, but this fight uh, started off. Um, Menavides, you could tell he was just dealing with that ring rust. Torres was basically hitting him, hitting him with one twos and boxing and, and moving around him, and then then it got to maybe the 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 uh, I think the second or third round. I think Menavides was starting to heat up a little bit more. You can tell him trying to get them cobwebs off, but. I'm not sure if he was doing, especially in the first half of this fight, he definitely wasn't uh, doing enough. Uh, and he, he was blocking a lot of punches with his face, you know, which was interesting. And soon them, them, them hands start dropping. Uh, he was letting Torres hit him with these, these, these interesting combinations. Um, but mid round, I think mid fight, I think Benavidez was able to try to uh, put up a little bit of run and, and, and catch uh, Torres in, in a, you know, in a corner and corner him and, and has some success in the corners um, in this fight. Uh, of course, Torres was looking to counter and, and boxing beautifully. It was interesting because when, when I watched this fight, I, I thought that Torres won this fight. But when I scored it, uh, I scored it 95-95. Now, this fight was scored a majority draw. But uh, I think one of the scorecards was for Benavidez. And I want to say that I cannot see how Benavidez won this fight or how he thinks he won this fight. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and even when I look at my scorecards, the, some of the rounds I gave Benavidez, uh, I, I probably was being generous. You know, I, I, I think it's, it's either a draw or Torres won this. And I think it was, you know, even Torres, he just laughs it off and say, hey, y'all saw the fight. He got cheers from the crowd. Uh, Benavidez got booed in his hometown. Uh, so that tells you all, uh, all you need to know about uh, who people thought won a fight. But I think it was a good fight for Benavidez to get the ring rust off. I think it, that, that wasn't necessarily the opponent to do it. But, I mean, that's why you do it, you know, go in there and see where you at. So I, I think, I'm not sure if I like him, uh, what he's going to do going forward. Um, if, he, if he doesn't rematch uh, Torres, I'm not sure if he should select anyone that's better in that. I think he's going to probably... Uh, get hurt because I, I he needs to be more active and I know he has I'm not sure how that uh they were they made a point that he was shot in the legs about five years ago and he has a metal rod in one of his legs so I'm not sure if that's he's 100 with that um and plus of course the three years out of ring that that couldn't have helped him and they, they said he had to lose weight from 
230 pounds. And to think that guy who fought at what's weight was walking around 230 pounds after that, it was, you know, it was interesting. But we'll see where he goes from here. Um, any thoughts you guys have on this fight? Not really the fight. You know, I, uh, with Ben Davida, it's, it's always going to be an issue as far as that leg, you know, coming off an injury like that. If you are ever able to, because in that Crawford fight, he was kind of dragging his leg. And in that moment, he looked like that was peak prime Benavidez. And he had he brought everything he could to the table. It's just that, that one chink in his armor of not being able to use that leg. And so I don't care how much physical therapy that you do, you know, that leg is still has a bullet, you know, in there or a bullet that went through there. And, you know, being a world-class athlete, that's going to be very difficult for you to overcome that. And, you know, like you say, you couple that with a three-year layoff. Um, I mean, what you do like about both Benavides is that fighting spirit, that heart, that determination, you know, like they have, you know, what a fighter's supposed to have in them, you know, the willingness to go out on their shield, and, you know, that sort of thing. I just, you know, as far as the, that freak accident, however it occurred, you know, I don't know. And regardless, it, it really doesn't even matter at this particular point. It's just the fact that it happened. And I don't, I just don't know the peak, you know, the ceiling for him in his career after that particular type of injury. And also he's moving up to 154, where I don't know if that's a good weight division for him, period. I thought 147 was better if he could make that because of the physical attributes that he has against 147 pounders, where that's not going to be the case at 154. Um, and, but like I say, you just can't take three years off and then just come back and you fighting somebody who's fine-tuned. They've been fighting. He, he's, he's probably more talented than his opponent was. But at the same time, if somebody's doing something on a consistent basis and you aren't, then sometimes they can be more skilled than you on that particular night because you're just not prepared. And so I just think that that's what it was. But the other thing that I wanted to mention, not necessarily about the fight, is Man, you know, the zone was tripping last night as far as having that fight start around 9 30 or 10 o'clock. But typically, you know, I'm team the zone because they be having fights that be coming on about like Joshua fight, right? And it'd be like 5 30, the main event coming on. You know what I mean? I'm getting old, bro. <laughs> you know what I mean? I like fights like that. I can just sit up here and watch a fight early, a big, huge fight, huge main event. And then I can go ahead and get my nap in. You know what I'm saying? Like last night, I'm sitting up there, I was struggling. I'm sitting up there watching Benavidez first versus like the first round. The next thing I know, I'm looking up. It's the fifth round, you know, and I can't really. That's why I couldn't, you know, give you a good recap of the fight because a lot of it I didn't see. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you on that. I, th I think with the zone, I, some of those cards are early because some of them, I think the zone specialize in, in, in Europe. Uh, yeah, Europe. A lot of those fights are, you know, yeah, their time, they're probably coming on at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. Yeah. Our time is like 4, you know, 5 o'clock main event. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, we, we have the the luxury or <laughs> or or non-luxury of living on the East Coast where, you know, you have a lot of fights taking place in Vegas, you know, and they're like two, three hours behind us. And they're like, and they're trying to maximize their revenue. So <sighs> it's like, hmm. Yeah, I, I feel you on that. I, I especially when it comes to them big main events, those Canelo fights. And I think Canelo got in the ring. It was probably after midnight. So it, 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 
sometimes I, I, I make a joke that some of these fights don't even take place on that Saturday, that day. It takes place on the day after, pretty much. Mm -hmm. so, it's it, going to be interesting with Tank, you know, like if they play it out like they typically do as far as when main events come on. And so he's fighting on a Sunday. If they, like I said, if they do it the same way going based on L.A. time, then that fight is going to come on so late. And then also the fact that most people have to get up and go to work the following morning. So I don't know how that's going to play out for them as far as the pay-per-view numbers. But if I had to pay for it, then they would have one less pay-per-view box because I can't stay up that late. Yeah, I'm going. I'm Sunday night, I'm going to sleep on time. <laughs> Absolutely. But we can move on, man. I, I don't want to uh, make things more than they need to be. So moving right along in the same way, class, I think most of our fights outside the, the Galliad Martinez fight has been taking place from 160, 168, and all these guys have opportunities to, to even fight each other in the future. So we have a fight coming up on December 29th. We have uh, Gennady Chibujiga Lofkin versus Ryota Murata for the um, middleweight title. But we have that on December 29th. Uh, how you guys see this fight going? So, yeah, this fight was recently made official. It'll be in Japan. We have Gennady Golovkin. He's coming in at 41-1-1 with 36 knockouts, 39 years old, 5'10", 70-inch reach. He last beat Camille Zerameda, uh last December. And we have Murata, who's 16-2 with 13 knockouts, 35 years old, 6 foot even, 75-inch reach, and he last beat Stephen Butler by knockout in December of 2019. So a few things that I noticed from jump off, just off the, off the numbers, off the statistics, Triple G is 39 years old, and although his layoff has been one year less than Murata's, he's at that age where we don't know where it's going to start showing. I mean, it's already started showing in some of his fights, but with his come forward, throw bombs, eat punches kind of style, how long is that going to work for him? And it's not like we can expect him to change that up at this point. On um, Murata's end, you know, he's a 2012 gold medalist. He's only had 18 pro fights. And his two losses came to Hassan and Dom and Rob Brandt, both of which he avenged by knockout. But that loss to Brandt was three years ago. It was a pretty wide unanimous decision. Although you could argue that he underestimated Brent and their last fight where he stopped Brent in the second round was a bigger indicator of Murata's talent. You could also argue that his split decision loss to Ndan was a robbery. That said, from what I have seen in Murata, um, you know, he doesn't have the quality of professional opposition that Triple G has. And I'm not sure that he in particular is going to be able to withstand Triple G's style that I was referencing before. So, like, you had, since fighting Canelo, really, you've had Devinchenko has been the main person to find success against Triple G, kind of going to his body in the early rounds and being aggressive with that. And that's a recipe that maybe Murata could follow, but but I don't think that Murata's chin has been tested the way Triple G is going to test it. And I would favor Triple G probably by a late stoppage in this one. Pretty good prediction there, you know. This is a unification matchup between the two. Canetti um, has the IBO, IBF. Morata um, has one of the WBA straps or the WBA straps. There's so many of them out there. I really don't know if it's um, a secondary or if it's the actual one. But um, just a little bit of context of this fight. You know, they've been talking about this 
for at least three years. Um, they were supposed to fight about three years ago, but like you said, Murata, he lost to Endom in a controversial um, decision where he knocked Endom down a few times and appeared to dominate Endom. And then at around that same time, Golovkin had that draw against Canelo. And then um, Murata ends up rematching TK on Endom. Then Golovkin um, fought Vines Rosen, and then Golovkin was going to fight BJ Saunders. And then Canelo said, if you don't fight me in May or whatever month that was, then or September, um, if you fight the fight against Billy Joe Saunders before you fight me in September, the fight in September is off. So you had that little circus of events going on. Um, and so that just kind of stalled the fight that was supposed to take place. But saying all that to say that these guys, their names been, you know, intertwined with one another for at least since um, 2017. Um, Murata is very well liked out there in the Japan area. And that's the reason why they wanted to set the matchup up with him in Triple G, because he has a huge following. He has a huge following because he's clean cut. He's educated. Um, he has the gold medal that he won. Um, so like I say, he has a, a huge following back home and that's where the fight is going to take place. And that's what you, you mentioned that earlier. Now, although people consider him a paper champ, you know, I think that if you think about it, who did he be to win the belt? You know, so that's the reason why when they were talking about having a fight before with or without the belt, people were like, come on, Triple G, man, fight somebody like a Charlo, fight somebody like an Andra, fight somebody, fight somebody with a pulse. You know what I mean? We don't know who this kid is. You know, they know him out there. But Triple G, we need you to step up the level of your opposition. But things have come full circle. Triple G has had another pretty long layoff. And then this kid has had nearly a two-year layoff. So it kind of makes sense for both guys to get into the ring, you know, at this particular stage. Now, as far as the skills that each guy has, Golovkin, we know that he's patient. You know, he exhibits a lot of calmness and confidence. And that probably comes based on his amateur experience. Um, you rarely see Golovkin off balance, which actually helps his punching power because he's almost always in position. And when you have like the cement in your fist like Golovkin, then you know, you're gonna do some serious damage on your opponent. And he has one of the best jabs in boxing. If you want to, you know, test that theory, take a look when he chose to fight using a jab against David Lemieux. He just kept him at bay, you know, before putting him away. And also, Golovkin typically is good um, at cutting off the ring. And then the other attribute that I want to add is in that he typically, so far, has shown to have a granite chin. Now, Murata, on the other hand, had a chance to watch a few of his fights. Um, what I've noticed as far as his strength is that his work rate. Um, he has really, really, really good power um, and his size. He probably entered, in, entered in, um, into the ring will probably appear to be bigger um, than Triple G. And he's, he has solid power in both hands. I like his love hook to the body. And I also like that shot the right hand that he throws um, often in his fights. He's also had a solid amateur career. Um, so he has that amateur ped pedigree and will bust up most of his opponents you know, who sit right there in front of him. Now, I think Murata is a solid 160-pound fighter. I'll give him that um, and will give most 
guys trouble in the middleweight division with the exception of maybe Canelo, Triple G, Andre, and Charlo. Now, I take that back. I think he may give, you know, somebody like Charlo a, a run for his money because of how durable and tough he is. Um, but the one thing that is going to spell trouble for him and which could spell trouble for him um, unless we see an advanced age Triple G in the ring is going to be his lack of head movement. Now, my prediction, I think this fight is about, I would say about a 70-30 in favor of Triple G. I think all in all that this is a bad matchup for Murata because of the lack of head movement. And if Golovkin decides to, you know, box a bit, you know, it could be a frustrating night before he gets stopped later in the fight. Um, Golovkin can box off the back foot. Like I said, he did that against Lemieux. I don't know which strategy he's going to use inside the ring like he could just jab him you know keep him at bay because he he doesn't do well when somebody's putting that jab just like Brent was doing right even though he fights different than triple g but he also if he doesn't respect what marauder brings to the table then you know glovkin you know could decide to slug it out a little bit more and end things early. But all in all, like I said, I have a 70-30 in favor of Triple G, but my prediction would be somewhere between seven and 10. Dale, you have anything that you want to share on that? Um, potential, not the potential matchup, but the actual matchup that's going to take place in December. No, I don't. I don't have anything else to share. All right, cool. Fellas, have anything else you would like to share um, in general before we wrap things up? No, sir. Danny, you don't want to share your, your acting experience and, and take us on out? I don't know if it's going to be good yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if it's good, I'm coming back here talking my talk, though. We have a Rotten Tomatoes and everything, but I'm going to put that on hold for a few weeks. You feel me? My man, my man. So you're going to be in uh, the premiere. You're going to be waiting to see if anybody clap, looking around in the back with like these thick glasses, looking, <laughs> trying to disguise yourself. Hey man, they might not see the light of day if it's not good. I'm not gonna hold you. It's <laughs> <laughs> all good. But on that note, folks, um, hopefully you enjoyed the episode. We'll be back next week to recap that Terrence Crawford versus uh, what was that? Sean Porter next week. Mm-hmm. Um, Showtime, Sean Porter. Yeah, real quick, who you guys have on that? I see a late. Uh, I see a late bud stoppage, man. I think he's gonna stop Porter because he's trying to prove a point and. I think it's going to be ugly, and I think uh, he's going to flick some damage on Porter, and he's going to smell blood. I think uh, – I'm not sure if I see Terrence Crawford stopping Porter, but I think he's going to uh, win it down the stretch and dominate down the stretch for a uh, unanimous decision. Mm, a whole lot for my final prediction. I sent a text message out to you, fellas. I have to see a little bit more of, like, the final, you know, training that they're going to show and do, you know, for the public. And then I'll make my final prediction. But on that note, folks, we'll catch you next week. You have a great rest of your week. And we out. Peace. Peace. Peace.